بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه اجمعين اللهم لا سهل الا ما جعلته سهلا وانت تجعل الحزن اذا شئت سهلا اللهم اعنا على ذكرك وشكرك وحسن عبادتك يا رب الكريم السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته اوكي جايز سو ليتس I was going to jump straight into the actual text, but uh, what I thought I would do is have a quick recap on a few points. Um, I've been extremely busy, extremely, extremely busy uh, at this moment in time because of a number of programs that are on, which have led to a few issues. Number one, I have not been able to answer this week's forum questions. Number two, I have not been able to check even last week's notes or the week's notes before then. The week's notes before then obviously need serious checking, disclaimers, adding this, that, whatever. And I um, need to actually, I know you're thinking this is a joke, but it has to be actually sent to a lawyer. And uh, I spoke to her uh, last week, and she's, she's the best. And she can tear a, a document apart like I've seen no one tear it apart. So um, she's already reviewed the video, and she said that um, uh, uh, that she wanted to because I know many students like to copy some of these things and uh, we ask that the videos are not copied and the, co- the video at the moment is locked behind the forum. It's on the forum. People have been asking, where's the video, where's this, where's that? I, I said to everyone that the video will remain but it will remain on the forum. So you have to be on the forum. Um, so it's still there, but people can copy it and cause like a headache for us, um, especially with today's, today's announcement. Um, it's a very interesting document. If you go to the Engage website, um, engage.org.uk, it's a seven-page PDF which has been released by the government. Um, David Cameron's Counter-Extremism Task Force, or maybe it's the Extremism Task Force, their findings post-Lee Rigby. And it's a, I mean, it's, it's a disaster, to be honest, what they've said. And it's important for the Muslims to be aware of exactly what they're going to try and uh, misalign us with what they're going to try and blame us with it's very it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a and you'll see the comment just follow Engage uh, you should all be aware of the work of Engage they're the specialists from, of the Muslim community when it comes to media and politics and um, on that note those who are in London who are watching I will be giving the uh, keynote speech uh, this Sunday evening inshallah um, at the Water Lily uh, venue on Myland Road this Sunday evening, maybe four o'clock or something like that. Again, it's on their website. It's an annual dinner. It's actually free. Maybe actually it's closed. Maybe uh, you need to email them to register. But I think actually it might have already been booked out uh, because it's free and we're packed and there's dinner. And I think there's even some nightmare going on as well. But they called in the sheet. They should just say yani jalsa, isn't it? Like in the good old days. Like you know. Custom, you guys have such a great variety of events to go to. You know, you can pick and choose 
this event, that event. In our day, custom was only jalsa at the local Brillo Masjid. Yeah, and that was the only thing you could go to. You'd get a qana at the end of it, you'd go there, you'd be bored out your, bored out your brains, man. Custom, sit there, listen to this nod, to that nod. Medina Gali wasn't too bad. Medina Gali, whatever, that was all right. I could, I could handle that. I learned the words that one. So uh, that's the Sunday. So uh, in the next few days, you will see the report or the, or the commentary from our side, the Muslim side, on that. We, we reject that report wholeheartedly. It basically is just uh, impugning the entire Muslim community because of some freak yani who went and killed Lee So it's unacceptable. So we have to respond in the right way. So um, <laughs> uh, an inside joke is that I'm suffering from uh, an illness. It's called Istanbulism. <laughs> Istanbulism is basically when I can't read past one page of my own work. Whether that's a transcribed piece or a piece I wrote or whatever, I start to have violent like shakes and fits when I get towards the bottom of one page. I can't read anything from myself. This is not about anyone else, but it's just myself. That's a condition which came upon, it was found and discovered in Istanbul, and that's why we call it Istanbulism. And I'm currently suffering from a major bout of that for the last two weeks. That's why I can't check these two sets of notes. So we're a bit behind on that. The forums were a bit behind. Inshallah, this week, all of that will be released, the two sets of notes. And then, of course, all the videos are still there anyway. Audios are still there. Um, I did want to also mention a couple of things about questions. Um, actually, last week, people thought that that was the official presentation on Bid'ah because one of the uh, side tangents led to Bid'ah. And... It's important to realize that um, just because something is discussed in class doesn't mean it's the official kind of discussion on that subject. And that's important because um, when it's not done like that, then it's not done in a structured fashion. It's okay to explain it as a tangent, to just broaden your mind for that moment. But it's not good enough to study. We did not study Bidah last week. We just mentioned a few random principles. And I know that's problematic. I know that when a teacher introduces a subject, it sometimes raises more questions than answers. But sometimes it's there to explain the tangent. And as mature students of knowledge, you have to appreciate that. And so that's why I've not been and don't want to answer all the questions, the 26,000 questions on bid'ah, this bid'ah, that categories, blah, 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 blah. Because it wasn't a lesson on bid'ah. It was just an example of, or using a few examples to make it clear what it means to, uh, when differentiating between following non-Muslims and so on and so forth in their events. At the same time, I also appreciate that it was completely coincidental uh, that obviously Christmas is coming and people are stuck with the issues of uh, celebrating or, <laughs> or not celebrating but um, wishing uh, greetings and so on and so forth. Something which uh, I myself uh, take relatively seriously uh, in that although I believe uh, there's no doubt that Christmas has a Christian connotation in the eyes of some people who commemorate or celebrate it. Um, actually, the date itself is more paganistic in origin. And the real reality is that today, of course, it has a very uh, capitalist kind of uh, flavor. And it's more, more part and parcel of for shopping and for companies and for business and so on. Yet, we cannot remove the pagan Christian origins from it. And it's something that should be avoided. And certainly, certainly, it comes under the category of an aid. Okay, because the word Eid is a celebration. That's how we understand it. Yes, when I say Eid or festival, 
When I say eat, what do you understand by the word eat? Celebration? That's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say eat. Festival. Festival. Celebration. What's the difference between a festival and a celebration? Festival is an event. Celebration is the act of... Good. Festival is the event. Celebration is the act of doing or showing happiness or something like that. Anyone else, when they think of Eid, do they still think of a festival? Now that you know that we've said the festival is an event and celebration is an act, what now, now that you know that, what do you think of when you think of Eid? To be a? Celebration. A celebration. Okay, so what's interesting, of course, is that the uh, hadith of Rasulullah when he came to Medina and he established for the Muslims the two Eids is because he saw them celebrating their Eids. He didn't see them celebrating, because they were celebrating their night. Actually, they were celebrating a festival that comes back again. Eid comes from the word Aad Ya'id, for to come back, meaning recurring, recurring. So it doesn't mean celebration at all, actually. But because it comes back on a regular day, people celebrate it, or commemorate it, depending upon its nature. So... Um, it is important to understand that Christmas would, would squarely fall into an Eid. Squarely. Because number one, it comes back every year on the same date religiously. Whether you use that word in its literal sense or in its metaphorical sense. People religiously celebrate or commemorate that day. And there's a celebration as well. So it has the returning, it has the festival. it has So meaning that to celebrate Christmas is something which is completely impermissible from every angle. If you use the religious one, you will use the capitalist one or whatever, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us our, our celebrations, okay? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has chosen for us our days. So I think that once you understand that, then you will appreciate that anything which is associated with such a thing also then takes the connotation of the original ruling, meaning to congratulate someone is something which is not permissible, okay? And should be avoided. Likewise, to give a... Uh, a card wishing the same thing should be avoided. I think everyone knows that, okay? The issue isn't that. The real issue for discussion is how do you blag it, basically, isn't it? That's what people want to know. How do you get around it? How do you make sure people aren't uh, upset or anything like that? Well, the answer to that, of course, is that you use as much kind of, you know, style and, and, and confidence and everything that you have. And there is no sharia answer. The sharia answer would be you start out from the front and say, you know what I mean? Yeah? Your religion for you, my religion for me, up yours, Yani. That's it. Okay? But that's obviously not the way that uh, we do things when we're living amongst the uh, non Muslims. Uh, living amongst the non Muslims. So uh, there are friends and this and that and whatever. And so, uh, and we don't even, and the irony is that we don't even want to wish them a happy Christmas or something like that. Um, because that would be then specifying the event itself. Yet we are happy for them to be able to get together with family, have positive break, uh, have a positive holiday, uh, meaning in the, the sense of coming off from work on the, the, the days before, the days after. This is something which is uh, wanting good for other people. And that's something that we can celebrate. So I think that it's possible to say season's greetings, happy new year, have a great break, have a, a wonderful time with your family, etc., etc. Okay, you shouldn't really use or allude to the Christmas festival itself. You know what I'm saying? And I think anything. I think as long as someone tries to do that, and it comes off, then it comes off. If it doesn't come off, then it doesn't come off. Yeah. And 
Uh, some people will have to stick to that. Other people are, you know, like myself, when I used to be much more in a regular non-Muslim working environment, it'd be very, very clear that I'm not interested in, in Christmas. I think it's a lot of nonsense, blah, blah, blah. And I would make sure that, uh, that, you know, a couple of weeks before, a couple of months before, I would take them out somewhere, treat them much better than they get treated at Christmas, and make sure that this is not something which is personal, not something which is about me being stingy, not, you, know, you know, this kind of thing. And, but I was able to pull it off. I had a very good relationship, and some people can. Other people can't, right? And people just want to be polite. People just want to say thank you, don't know what to say. Like my mum, Miskin, Yani, complete disaster she was. I went to drop her off at the airport on Sunday to go to Riyadh. And uh, <laughs> well, this, is, this is the funniest thing. I nearly cried with laughter. She, we went to the uh, 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 check-in desk and there was a non-Muslim uh, guy uh, doing the check-in. And it was very, very quick and very, very, you know, whatever. We were underway anyway, meaning uh, our luggage. But he was so, so quick and so, you know, gave my mum the seats that she wanted, gave her everything super quick, whatever, and it was gone. So, <laughs> as, as I turned around to walk away, I said, cheers, mate. So my mum goes, okay, thank you. Nice to Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> nice to Christmas. <laughs> She lost the plot. Allah, I mean, you laugh so much. <laughs> I said, what the hell is that, man? She goes, oh, just being nice, isn't it? I said, if you're going to be nice, say it properly at least. Say Merry Christmas. What the hell does nice to Christmas mean? <laughs> the, guy, the guy was bamboozled. What the hell was that? <laughs> oh, my God. So there you go. doesn't matter how much you tell people and teach people when you can't sort it out at home. What's the point? So... <laughs> So I want to say that uh, that's something which you need to kind of um, navigate around. I don't, I don't think it's very, very uh, difficult. The Christmas party um, is something which um, in general should be avoided, not really because of its date, because actually no one does it on Christmas. All right, It's done on the 10th or, you know, in Shazad's case, they did it yesterday or whatever. And uh, <laughs> the difference with Shazad is that yani, he organized that. <laughs> Are we going to have a lesson today or what? No. <laughs> she said that it's following Sunnah, you see? He, he did it the right way. He chose a normal date and he said, I'm going to show you Yani Abash. Organized a great one, mashallah. Nothing to do with Christmas. Everyone came and they were happy. Shazad was happy. Shazad's accountant, not very happy. But that's about it. Um, so uh, I don't think it's a problem from a Shari point of view in terms of the event itself. The problem is exactly what's going to happen there. Alcohol and messing about and so on and so forth. And, you know, people in state of undress and, and so on. That's the, that's the bigger problem. <clears throat> um, on the issue of birthdays um, uh, and it being bid'ah uh, and so on, we've, gone, we've opened up a way too big a chapter there. Um, people have been asking, uh, is, it the, is it a major bid'ah? It's not a major bid'ah. And the reason I say that is because a lot of uh, uh, children with, a lot of parents with young children who are too silly to understand and too young to understand, like these lot, Annie, yeah? they, they can't get it around their heads when you try to tell them that there's something better and blah, blah. So then they start to get psychologically, Annie, I don't know, inverted or something. So, you know, when they get that kind of uh, 
when they get a invitation here and there, I don't think it's the it's the biggest problem in the world um, if you're feeling way way under pressure, okay? It, because people just want to find a ruling. I'm saying that if you were to let one go, then it would fall into an action that should be avoided, but it's not the worst haram in the world. I want to say though and make it very clear that you should put your defense up from the very very beginning. And that's the best advice as a parent. I've never let any of my children go. I wouldn't want them to go because the first time that they taste that is something which can't be, you can't get rid of that taste. And it leaves a, a situation. Um, and it's not the birthday, the celebration, or the party which is the problem. It's the environment which is created and the friend and the mahol, as we say, the joke, okay, which creates a certain uh, uh, state of mind which will never be achieved or seen at home, and therefore there's the this and the other which is created. And that's got to be really protected against. The this and the other, because the, this will never be as good as the other. It's the same reason when, when, we, when we teach parenting, why the, the father is always loved more to be with than the mother, because the, he is actually the other. The majority of the time is spent here with the mother becomes boring, becomes repetitive, becomes all of the, uh, the negative things that you associate with parenting, whereas a father is little time, fun time, break time, and so on. And that's the, that, that expand that to the, the bigger scene, involve non-Muslims and, and uh, impermissible practices, and that's what you create. So it's important to hold firm. And if you do hold firm and parents are politely informed from the very beginning when your child goes to a school, then they generally tend to avoid causing the fitna. Because it is a fitna when they keep sending invitations. But once they get a clear message, a polite, nice message in the first birthday, then they generally tend to avoid them giving you the invitation. They understand it, recognize it. You can still give sweets and things. You can still give gifts to the child and so on. But I think that's important. That's that. On the issue of haircuts, um, <clears throat> uh, there was a question about sister's hair, a women's hair. And uh, what's the rules with respect to that? Of course, qaza applies to them if they all, if they felt like doing something stupid like that, yeah, like doing a, a Sinead O'Connor or something, yeah. Um, but but when it comes to the generality of their hair, then it's the same, meaning they have the permissibility to grow it long or to cut it short. Okay, there is no evidence that prohibits the cutting short or the having of a hairstyle for Muslim women. Uh, again, they'll turn around, or some of the scholars, a few of them, I must say, will say, no, it's haram because that's copying the non-Muslims. Well, we'll say that actually short hair for females isn't necessarily the preserve of non-Muslim women. It's a style. And a husband, if he prefers a certain style, then that is, that is certainly allowed. And if the woman herself wants to have a certain style, and, and we, we talked about this, the hadith of Mantashabbaha biqawmin fahuminhum, that we discussed yes last week, which is that whoever resembles the people, then he is from them, or she is from them. It is to do with that which is that those people are marked out by, right? Those people are known by. It identifies them specifically, not if it's a general trait, a general matter, a societal norm. Even if it's a non-Muslim societal norm, but if that societal norm is not something which specifies them specifically in a way which is exclusive and kicks out Islam as well, that would be the monk hairstyle that I explained. That would be a, a dog collar, or a clerical collar, sorry, you know, etc., etc. So a woman, you know, cutting her hair short, like, I don't know, someone who's female, famous, who's short, and she does that because she likes the hairstyle, that's not called copying a non-Muslim. 
okay unless she starts to idolize that woman wants to be like her act like her you know then that's something which is impermissible of course uh, and likewise i was also thinking after i got hold of some of the good stuff mashallah the um uh wild man i think it's called huh? no hamish hamish anyway there's lots of i've got hold of lots mashallah i was thinking about that the other day <clears throat> when it comes to grooming <clears throat> When it comes to grooming, <coughs> the hadith was specifically, or the statements on hadith, were specifically to do with the beard. And you will know that we mentioned some hadith that the Prophet ﷺ said, you don't do it every day, that he prohibited from it being done every day. And Shaykh al he explained and he said that this is because we shouldn't, you know, go over the top with luxury and start to, you know what I'm saying? And I said, well, you know, I agree in principle, but actually a man should be a man. And yani it's not spent all the time likewise. But then an argument can be made for the woman as well. Should the woman be beautifying herself every day as well? Answer is no. Actually, no Muslim should be beautifying themselves every day above and beyond what would be for a special occasion. So a special occasion would be a Jum'ah. A special occasion would be for the husband for his wife or the wife for his husband the, or the wife for her husband. That's not a normal, normal scenario. So every day you'd expect to basically wash and clean. But on the uh, Friday or like a, every couple of days, uh, you might need to do something extra. Or there might be an event then that's something which is good. That would not be something which is impermissible. Now, that's the difference. Also, I was thinking, there are certain cosmetics which also have a, uh, I don't want to say medicinal, but what's the other word for medicinal? Like a cream, which is hand cream. What would you consider a hand cream? Therapeutic. You see, maintenance is what I'm thinking, if there's a word for that, okay? People might apply a certain cream, to keep skin soft or whatever, or to keep skin healthy or so on, I wouldn't consider that to be grooming. Okay, there's a there's a subtle difference between looking to uh, impress in terms of showing one's beauty or beard oiling and making it shiny and soft, or uh, uh, you know a woman doing her eyes or something I don't know, and someone using cream to soften one's skin because it's dry and having to use it every single day. That using every single day is not what's had, what's been prohibited. From the Prophet ﷺ. Even for example, he, the Prophet ﷺ said tarajjul, meaning <coughs> combing. That combing doesn't mean just to, uh, the quick comb before you go to the masjid, for example. It means a proper combing, putting in the beard oil, and doing all the full behavior. Yeah? So that's the kind of thing that should be avoided. So uh, those are a, bit, a few clarifications for some main principles that were covered in previous lessons. Alright, cool? Yeah, we're good with that? Okay, so let's then start then this uh, uh, major section actually. Um, it is the Sunan of ablution and in the <clears throat> in the uh, Arabic uh, it's on page 4 uh, Imam al-Hajjabi alayhi rahmatullah says in the text in the method of Zad al-Mustaqni' he says وَمِن سُنِنِ الْوُضُوءِ السِّوَاكُ وَغَسْرُ كَفَيْنِ ثَلَاثًا وَيَجِبُ مِن نَوْمِ لَيْلٍ نَاقِدٍ That's page 4. And then he goes on to page 5 in the Arabic. وَالْبَدَاءَةُ بِمَضْمَضَةٍ ثُمَّ اسْتِنْشَاقٍ وَالْمُبَالَغَةُ فِيهِمَا لِغَيْرِ الصَّائِمٍ وَتَخْلِلُ الْلِحْيَةِ الْكَثِيفَةِ وَالْأَصَابِعِ وَالتَّيَامُنِ وَأَخْضُ مَاءٍ جَدِيدٍ لِلْأُذْنَيْنِ وَالْغَصْلَةُ the translation of these two pages goes, the sunan of ablution include 
using a tooth skin, using using the I should say actually using the tooth stick, washing the hands three times, although it is obligatory after rising from nocturnal sleep, which invalidates ablution. The next page, uh, beginning by beginning, meaning the wudu. So this is a separate point. Beginning by rinsing the mouth and then rinsing the nose. Exaggerating in them both, or in the two, except whilst fasting. Running one's fingers through the beard. Running one's fingers through the other set of fingers. Beginning with the right hand side. Using new water for the ears. And washing a second and third time. So that's the... Translation, all right. That's the translation, and so this is a, this is this is big stuff now. This is serious. We're straight into wudu, which is a major part of our religion, and um, obviously this is now proper purity kind of things that we will use every single day. And Sheikh Uthameen he mentions a number of really beneficial points that we will learn. I mean, all over the place. I mean, Dean all over this chapter, okay, and in the first few pages. And we mentioned some of the things, so we'll go quick on that. And other things that he hasn't mentioned, we'll spend some time on that. So the first thing he says, as sunan, this is on page 168, the, the uh, author uses the word sunan. And sunan is the plural of the word sunnah. Sunnah. And sunnah means the way. Okay? That's its general meaning. It means the way. Sunnatullah. Okay? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses that a number of times in the Qur'an. It's the way of Allah, or it's the way that He has prescribed for the people, or the heavens, or the creation, etc., etc. Okay, and um, and I said before that the word Sunnah it has different meanings depending upon the context. The in principle, the Sunnah when we talk about the Prophet sallallahu is وَأَفْعَالِهِ It is his statements, it is his actions, and it is it is his taqrirat. Taqrirat is the jama' of taqrir. It is the jama' of taqrir. Taqrir means his implicit approval or his tacit approval. Taqrir means to agree. Alright? So, for example, what that basically means is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is legislating for us our religion. And that legislation is done via him directly through the Quran or via the word of his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa And so... Everything that comes from the Prophet is generally going to be taken as a sunnah. So how is that going to be transmitted to us? Either he's going to say it, either he's going to do it, or either someone else is going to do it and he's not going to have a problem with that. And you have to remember that it is obligatory upon the Prophet ﷺ to speak up if there's a problem. Obligatory. It's not a personal choice that he goes, oh, I'll leave it. No. Meaning that if there's something which another companion does and it's wrong, the Prophet would be held accountable if he didn't speak up. It's obligatory upon him. And he did. Okay? He did. And so therefore, when he approves of something, that is also considered a bona fide sunnah. Is that clear, everybody? Is everyone accepting that? Yeah? Is a principle? Good. And, and also, uh, the Sheikh says that there's no difference actually between this understanding of the Prophet and also the words wajib and mustahab, which is interesting. Because the word wajib means obligatory and mustahab means something which is recommended. So already, okay, uh, uh, and what Sheikh is trying to say is that sometimes the word wajib, okay, when we say this is wajib upon you, 
that also can mean sunnah and it can also mean mustahab. Alright, that, that should confuse you. So how is the word wajib, which means obligatory, how can that mean sunnah, which is an action of the Prophet and how can it mean mustahab? What does mustahab mean? Recommended, yes? And remember we said that the word mustahab is not necessarily something which is directly from the Prophet himself, but it's understood to be something that he would have recommended or he allowed to be done in, in a way because of the actions of the companions. Well, I want to say that this word sunnah, like I mentioned to you last week, is interchangeable depending upon its context. Its meaning differs. Now before I explain and give you examples, because I did give you examples last time, I'm going to give you now the examples that Sheikh Uthameen gives. Before I say that, okay, it's clear that uh, the Imam al-Hajjawi is wanting to focus on the meaning that sunnah means non-obligatory. Non-obligatory. Now, here Muhammad, Sheikh Muhammad Mukhtar al-Shanqiti makes a really valuable point. Okay? And he says, obviously one of the biggest problems of... He doesn't say this, I say this. Okay? One of the biggest problems of our time is our misunderstanding of the word sunnah. Okay? Yes, the ulama, when they mention the word sunnah, they want to try and indicate that this is something non-obligatory. But they don't mention it so that you can now get away with not doing it, which is the modern-day understanding of Muslims. So you will see that when someone doesn't do something, you say to him, brother, you should do that, he goes, it's only sunnah. Yeah? For him, it's an excuse not to do it. And it's an excuse to miss it. So they don't pray their two rak'ah after Isha or whenever after Dhuhr. It's only sunnah. You know, it's only sunnah. And, and they try to justify it by the scholars using the word like this. Well, let me make it something clear to you. The scholars only ever divide categories like this in order to educate you that it's not obligatory. Not in order to tell you that you shouldn't do it. In fact, in fact, you should do it. If you want to be a follower of the Prophet ﷺ, you will only be a true follower if you follow him in all of his ways and everything that he does. And I will go further. Jumlatan, meaning in principle, it is an obligation to follow the sunnah. Okay? So the entire actions of the Prophet ﷺ, even though some of them are not obligatory, it is obligatory to follow them in principle. Yes, individually you can leave some here and there based upon need or reason or whatever, but they're to be followed. Okay, this is ittiba' rasul Okay, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that if you want to follow me, if you want to love me, then you have to love this messenger and you have to follow him. And this is something which is well established. So that's a reminder to all of us that we must not be negligent when it comes to the sunan. And a Muslim only increases in excellence the more sunnah that he or she does in every aspect of their life. Which is why we treat the sunnah and studying it, even though it's not obligatory, we treat it very, very seriously. Okay, folks, very, very seriously. Back to this interesting point that Sheikh Uthameen uh, gives us. Really nice. He goes, now, back to the discussion on the literal meaning. Well, the literal meaning is, I told you, the way. But technically, its legal meaning differs depending upon the field that you're using and even depending upon the hadith. And so sometimes the Prophet Sallallahu uh, uh, uses the statement or it's used with relation to the Prophet but actually it means obligatory. The Sheikh gives the first example. He goes, the first example of Sunnah being used in the, in the Sunnah there you go, right? In the, in the collections from the Prophet and it means wajib, it means something which is obligatory, is the following hadith. مِنَ السُنَّةِ إِذَا تَزَوَّجِ الْبِكْرَى عَلَى أَقَامَ عِنْدَهَا سَبَعَةً it is, the Prophet actually, Anas said this. Anas ibn Malik radiallahu anhu, he said, it is from the sunnah that if one is to marry a, a bikr, okay, all right, 
we'll, we'll, we'll discuss what that means in a minute, okay? Just put down Bikr, B-I-K-R, okay? Upon a thayyib, okay? Over a thayyib, uh, uh, just write down T-H-A-Y-Y-I-V for now, okay? Then he will spend with her seven. And you can put in brackets, nights. Okay? So, it, it is from the sunnah that if you are to marry a bikr over a thayyib, that, you, that he will spend with her seven nights. Nights is in brackets. Okay? So, let me just first explain what the Prophet ﷺ is trying to say. He's trying to say that if someone is already married, and you now marry another woman, and this woman, okay, for all intents and purposes, I'm just going to use his words because I haven't got around my head trying to find the right English word. But let's just say the word virgin for now. If you marry a virgin, all right, which isn't the correct word, it means someone who's not been married before, actually. That's what bikra means, all right? Then that woman, because she's not been married before, compared to the thayyib, who is a woman who has been married before, that she will get seven nights exclusive with her husband. That's in relative, that's relative to already being married. If you obviously, if you if he's if this is first marriage, then you're spending your whole life with her, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, miskin. Yeah. Alright, so uh, that's something else. I'm talking about that he has to now give the uh, the qism, meaning he has to divide his time between his wives, which is obligatory, to give each one their haq. So if you're already married, okay, then the, uh, the new bride gets certain special kind of treatment for the first time. What is that special treatment if she is a newly married woman, meaning never married before, unmarried woman, then she gets seven days. If she has been married before, she gets three days. This is the hadith, which is very famous. Now, I just want to mention that this is actually a statement of Anas ibn Malik. Okay, But this is a good example, a really good example for students of knowledge to understand that sometimes, and we'll just look at the uh, takhrij, Imam uh, the Muhaqqiq says, point footnote 2, he says, you don't have the thing? Um, he says, narrated by Imam al-Bukhari in the chapter of al-Nikah, the chapter of when someone marries the uh, unmarried, it's too late now, shall I leave it? And it has been uh, in the chapter of the woman marrying the newly married over the already married. Hadith number 5213, also narrated by Muslim in the book of breastfeeding. Okay. Um, in the chapter of what the newly married deserves and what the already married deserves with respect to how long the husband spends time with her after the night, the wedding night. Uh, after the wedding night. Hadith number 1461. So this hadith is in Bukhari and Muslim, but it's not a statement of the Prophet ﷺ. Yet the scholars, by consensus, virtual consensus, consider this to be a sunnah of the Prophet. Because something like that cannot be made up by Anas ibn Malik. And he, by saying, he clarified it by saying it's from the Sunnah. So this is a very good example of a hadith which is Hukum Marfu'ah. It has a it has the ruling as if it was said by the Prophet. It's raised, Rafa'a, Marfu'ah. It is raised in authority to as if the Prophet said it himself. What's the Prophet trying to say is, like I said, someone who's unmarried then she gets seven days because it's her first time and this and that. Whereas one who's been married before, it's not such a big thing. Three days and so on. Okay, quick, uh, so just so I get this right. What, what's unmarried called anyway? What is that? Single. <laughs> Maybe it is. No, it's not single because if someone's been married and divorced, she's single. 
So it's not single. What's the word? Thayyib is widow, right? No, does widow mean someone dies or... Huh? Is it definite? Is it, is it, is it uh, obligates death, yeah? Yes. Right, okay, so it's not widow then. So what's that then? Someone who's been married before. Yeah. Spinster. Huh? Unmarried. Oh, a spinster, someone who's never been married. Really, is that a phrase? If that's true... I was going to say, yeah, when you think of spinster, you think of very old. So what's a younger, uh, uh, never married woman? <laughs> Young spinster. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, the, 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 I mean, this is obviously about 30 years away when we come to it. But I do want to say that um, the reason I mention this is that the word bikra, okay, means unmarried. It means actually someone who not only, basically it means someone who has not had a valid uh, uh, marriage contract. Uh, never, huh? Never well, you see, no, not okay. So consummation is different. So we'll come to consummation in a minute, okay? When you say never married, there are some people who will get married with an invalid marriage contract. There will be other people who get married with a corrupt, facet marriage contract. That's a level better, but it's still unacceptable. Then there is the those who got married with a valid marital contract. If you've been valid by a marital contract, this takes you out of the uh, 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 category of bikra. Okay? So I want to say to you that... Bachelorette? <laughs> May bachelor is the guy who doesn't get married, Yeah. Yeah, there's someone online that will be screaming at you. You're, you're sitting there, you're going to sleep. Check online, man. Get some. Guys, get some sleep, bro. What's the title? Um, every, I, w- I was looking in the books of Usul. So we can, we can work this out together. I said, you know what? I'm not going to work it out by myself. Let's let everyone else work it out. Save me the headache, right? Every virgin is a bikr. But not every bikr is a virgin. Now tell me what's going on. Every, bik, every virgin is a bikr, but not every bikr is a virgin. It's more, more important to go into the whole married concept rather than Correct. being a virgin. Uh, more, than, more than the consummation. Yeah. Correct. So tell me, so, so uh, not every bikr is a virgin. Not every bikr is a virgin. Got married before. But the contract, yeah. Zina, yeah, correct. Zina comes into it. But there's a, there's a discussion over Zina. Because there was no... The reason why Zina is not normally part of this discussion is because there was never an intention for a marital contract. So let's just go back and understand it because my mind's slow today. Every bikr is... Not, okay? Not every bikr. Not every yet. Not every is a virgin. How does that work? Give me an example. The example you're giving 
The marriage contract wasn't valid. Uh, wasn't uh, valid. So they, if they consummated the marriage, she is no longer a virgin. Good. Very good. Excellent. That's exactly what I want to. I want to hear. Yes. So we have a woman who enters into an invalid marital contract. Marriage is consummated. She now lost her virginity, and but she is still a bicker because because the marital contract is not. Uh, uh, anyway, it gets it gets too complicated. But the point is, is that that's the principle, and Thayib is the exact opposite. Okay, meaning that someone who has had a marital contract and dealt with and everything even though it might not necessarily have involved the consummation of the marriage. Because that can happen, of course. Yeah? Might be some kind of reason. Anyway, the main thing is, the main thing, <clears throat> um, the main thing is what? That the word sunnah here is indicating wajib. Wajib. Okay? It means obligatory. You know, if you look in the books of fiqh, there's a discussion, this is maybe laughing at it, in the books of fiqh, there's a discussion whether a man can black going to Jum'ah uh, through this hadith so if he gets married to a young girl yani, does he have to go to Jum'ah because he has to spend seven nights <laughs> with Vaka <laughs> he's really trying to blag it and so I want you to know that it is a consensus by the scholars that they basically said yes that he will be he'll have to do so much with her and proper honeymoon hardcore yani, yeah? but he can't get out of Jum'ah Okay, meaning they took the question seriously, meaning that it is really an obligatory right of hers. It's an obligatory right of hers, unless in one condition, she waves it herself. Okay, if she waves it herself, um, then there's another way of uh, uh, using the word sunnah to mean recommended. To use to use the meaning recommended. This is the hadith of Ibn Zubair, Abdullah Ibn Zubair radiyallahu an. He al qadamain wa wadu al yad al yadi min al sunnah. That to straighten, to straighten together the feet, straighten up the feet, in brackets, in a line, and to put the hand upon the hand is from the sunnah, minas sunnah. Okay? So, to straighten up the feet in the line of prayer, and to put the right hand over the left hand in the prayer, is something from the sunnah. And we know from the supporting evidences that this is a sunnah with the definition meaning recommended, not wajib, not anything else. Okay, and this hadith has been narrated by Abu Dawood and uh, Imam Nawawi said it has a good chain, a good chain. As for the fuqaha, the <laughs> jurists, and the usuliyin, I don't even know what we call the usuliyin, but the scholars of, of of Islamic principles, of juristic principles, then basically they said that the word sunnah is everything which is not wajib, masiwal wajib, everything which is not Wajib, okay. <clears throat> Everything which has been commanded to, but not neces- but not upon a al ilzam, not in a manner which necessitates. So everything which has been commanded to do, the fuqaha said that the word sunnah means everything which has been commanded to do, but not necessarily in a uh, obligatory fashion, okay. And then also we have then the classic usuli definition, which we've covered many many times. Yuthabu fa'iluha that the one who does it uh, trying to follow the sunnah of the prophet then he is rewarded and the one who leaves it is not punished very good okay so that's good 
Everyone happy with that? Okay, with respect to the word sunnah. Let's talk now about a few of these sunan so that we can get something out of this lesson, inshallah. So the first one is siwak, okay? And siwak here is interesting because it's been mentioned right at the very beginning before one opens the wudu, even the, like the uh, washing of the mouth. And that just indicates again that uh, siwak isn't actually part of wudu. Siwak actually happens as soon as you wake up and you might just grab the siwak and start brushing your teeth. You know, if it's there. That's how it used to be with the Prophet ﷺ. It used to be right there. He would wake up and he would start straight away. Because the mouth is there, it's not necessarily going to be sorted out with water. Okay? And likewise, when you see the swag throughout the rest of the day, it's there to be done at that time. So, the Prophet ﷺ did, and we mentioned this hadith a couple of pages ago, that if it wasn't that I wanted, if it wasn't that I feared difficulty, I didn't want difficulty for my nation, I would have commanded them to do siwak with every wudu. That doesn't mean in the time of the washing of the mouth, okay? And I'll tell you why we think that. We think that because every pack who does wudu, he uses his finger, right? And this action of using the finger actually is based upon a weak hadith. There is no evidence from the Prophet ﷺ that he used his finger at all in his mouth. That's a very interesting point. And this hadith narrated by Imam Ahmed, we'll come to it later, but it's weak. But obviously it's been taken up by you know, cultural practice. So once you use your mouth like that, then you'd think that the toothbrush also would then take its role. Do you understand what I'm saying? You're already building upon a weak hadith in terms of your mind. So I want to just take a step back and say, actually the siwak would come in before the wudu has even started. Then, again, we are. let me remind you, we are talking about the optional matters, the recommended matters, okay? Meaning these are the non-obligatory matters. Let me remind you again, alright? So the next one, وَغَسْلُ kafaini ثَلَاثًا And the washing of the hands three times. The washing of the kaf. What's the kaf? The palm, correct. This is the kaf, okay? <clears throat> this is the word kaf. And, uh, or, technically, linguistically speaking, this is the word kaf, okay? When we say the kaf though, in its general sense, we mean yad, hand. And the hand is defined from the fingertips all the way to the wrist, the wrist bone itself. Okay, so that's the definition of a hand. The definition of the hand is from the fingertips to the wrist bone. But the kaf also refers to the entire thing. But technically speaking, the palm is the kaf. And the reason it's called kaf is because kafa or means to stop something, to refrain, or to, to, to push something away, or to stop something, or withhold something. So when you do that, you normally, you know, so if someone was to come and attack you, you would push them off with your hands, right? And so when you do that with the palm, then that's what was given the name. What did the poet say? The famous, everyone, know, everyone knows this actually, but you're not, you'll know when I explain it. This is the last line of the famous poem about the uh, boy who uh, was fooled into cutting out his mother's heart. Yes? And you've all seen the video. You've seen the video of the paralyzed uh, brother, Abdullah Ba'ni'ma. Adai, 
Ustadh, yani, he is obviously he is now uh, calls people and does a lot of lectures and so on. And he gives his example of his own story and how people have abused their mothers. And then he, at the end, he re- recites this beautiful poem. And this actually poem is written by a Christian Arab, actually. All right. Lebanese Christian Arab. And if you want to see it, you can go online. And if you type into Google like Abu Isa and maybe uh, mother or mothers, I'm pretty sure it will be there. I'm pretty positive. And it's, uh, the poem is there and the video and the English translation and some commentary to it as well. It's beneficial. It's very beneficial. And the last line, of course, is when he says, when he's about to kill himself, when he realizes what he's done, that he's yani, been such an idiot and he killed his mother. And then or he's, as he's about to take them, he took the knife. And, and as the poem goes, he was about to stab himself, a stabbing that would become a lesson for all the nations. A voice called out and it was the, the heart of his mother that said, Stop your hand and don't stab my heart twice in succession. Your heart, like, which is my heart. Stop your hand. So that's the word, word, word kaf, so linguistically it's always been used in that manner. So kaf means hand. Anyway, um, so, the, so here what he says is that it should be washed three times. So this is the sunnah. This is the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ that when you start your wudu, Anywhere or any time, okay, anywhere or any time, then you wash your hands three times, okay? And the reason for that is because <clears throat> he used to do that, Prophet used to do that, and that has been narrated by Imam al-Bukhari in the book, in the chapter of Wudu, and that chapter is called, uh, uh, the book of Wudu, sorry, and the chapter of Wudu three times, three times, hadith number 159, and also it's been narrated by um, Imam Muslim in the chapter in the book of purification in the chapter of the description of wudu and its perfection from the hadith of Uthman ibn Affan hadith number uh, 226 so this is the action uh, which has been clearly authentically narrated that the Prophet ﷺ, before starting his wudu would wash his hands three times why? because that is the things you're going to use to do the rest of your washing you're going to wash the rest of your body now and so if your hands are dirty then what's the point of you then washing the rest of the limbs, okay? And so therefore, it is becoming that they are put forward as the things which should be uh, washed first. A question, why, uh, why do we not say, even though the Prophet ﷺ was seen to have done this every single time, why don't we say it's wajib? Why don't we say it's wajib, even though the Prophet ﷺ was done, done this all the time? Anyone? Any ideas? Anyone? Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. It's not in the uh, ayah of Surah Al-Ma'idah. Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu idha qumtum ila salati faghsilu wujuhakum. O you who believe when you stand for prayer when you stand up for prayer faghsilu wujuhakum. Wash your faces. He didn't subhanahu wa ta'ala say Wash your hands. And this ayah establishes all the obligatory aspects which are going to come over the next few weeks of wudu. Okay? And so, even, so therefore, what we see now from a scholarly point of view, we see the Prophet ﷺ doing it all the time and telling everyone to do it. And we see Allah mentioning it in the Quran, the key aspects. And so when we combine these two sources of evidence, it becomes clear to us 
that the things mentioned in the ayah are absolutely obligatory and those which were mentioned by the Prophet ﷺ were those of a sunnah nature, meaning something which is not obligatory. So I hope that that makes that uh, clear. Yet, Imam al-Hajjawi then continues and what does he say? He says that washing the hands three times, that's from the sunnah, although it is obligatory after rising from nocturnal sleep which invalidates ablution. So he's saying that actually it does become obligatory in a certain time and place. We did touch upon this last time, okay? We did touch upon this, um, I don't know, about a year ago, something like that, okay? And uh, the, this is basically, you can tell me, who can summarize this uh, point for us, remembering the beginning of LP1? Who can summarize this issue? Put your hand up if you can summarize it, quickly. <coughs> Anyone? No? Yes. Can you say, um, Master said, this is to do with um, it being a sort of a spiritual act rather um, <coughs> than a physical cleaning, uh, and also because we don't know where your hands are to spend the night. Is, so that's part of the discussion. What you're saying is that, uh, which we're going to talk about uh, now in the hadith, but do you remember what we agreed upon or did we not? <coughs> okay. Nasser? Good. The, this is all about understanding the prophetic household and the, the way that the Muslims were at that time. We don't have plumbing. We don't have taps. We don't even have like uh, people with a lota or something like this. Yep. You have a bucket or you have a pan and it has water in it. And one way or the other, you're going to have to put your hands into that pan to get the job done. Now remember, we said the first obligatory act of wudu is washing the face. Yes? The first obligatory act of, of wudu is how are you going to wash the face except you're going to put your hands in. Most of the time, you're going to put your hands in. And so because of that putting the hands in and you waking up from a nighttime sleep and those hands are whatever they are, then the Prophet ﷺ said in the hadith which we will Quote again in the hadith of Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said إِذَا اسْتَيْقَضَ أَحَدُكُمْ مِنْ نَوْمِهِ فَلَا يَغْمِسْ يَدَهُ فِي الْإِنَاءِ حَتَّى يَغْسِلَهَا ثَلَاثَةً فَإِنَّ أَحَدُكُمْ لَا يَدْرِ أَيْنَ بَاتَتْ يَدُهُ This is hadith which um, uh, the translation of that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that if one of you wakes up at night from his sleep then let him not dip his hands into the Pot until he has washed them three times. For indeed, one of you, for indeed, you don't know, for, for indeed, none of you knows where his hand spent the night. Indeed, none of you know where his hand spent the night. This hadith, brothers and sisters, you know, Orientalists and liberalists and secularists, they try to attack this hadith for a number of reasons, okay? Mostly because of its meaning. They, they said that, what, what does it mean that, that the hand spent the night? It doesn't make sense or whatever. So first of all, I just want to say straight off the bat, okay? This hadith is not only is it narrated by Bukhari and Muslim. Not only is it from the most authentic hadith that we have. This is actually a hadith which is mutawatir. Okay? This is a hadith which is mutawatir. Now, um, let me explain to you what hadith mutawatir means. A hadith mutawatir means it's been narrated by so many companions in so many different areas, at so many different times, and collected in so many different places, 
and spread so far that it was actually and is actually impossible to fabricate because every single uh, 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 narration when gathered together is exactly the same. So this becomes mutawatir. This tawatur is a condition for the Qur'an. Any ayah of the Qur'an, for it to be passed as an ayah of the Qur'an, has to meet the condition of tawatur. Not just to be authentic. Because a hadith that's only been narrated once, which is the most famous hadith which has only been narrated once, إِنَّمَا الْأَعْمَالُ بِالنِّيَاتِ Okay, indeed, actions are by intention alone. So this is authentic hadith, only ever been narrated once. Only ever been collected in one single fashion. From Sayyidina Umar bin Khattab. Okay? Only once. Ever. But it's super authentic. But then you have other hadith which are the opposite to this. They are likewise authentic but been collected by a multitude of companions. Multitude of students. Multitude of places. That's called tawatur. And obviously tawatur gives you more confidence than a singular narration. Agreed? And that's why the Quran is able to deal with doubt because every ayah is mutawatir. Okay, it has tawatur. It has the concept of tawatur. This hadith has been narrated by Bukhari, Muslim, and Nasai At-Tirmidhi, Ibn Majah, Abu Dawood, uh, Ahmed ibn Hanbal, Ibn Hibban, Abu Ya'la, and Adar Qutni. All ten of them straight, and then many of the other Musannafat and other books of collections of hadith as well. Now, let me just quickly uh, discuss the issue here. First of all, batat yaduhu, where his hands spend the night. That's why people always translate this correctly as nocturnal sleep. Okay? Nocturnal sleep. The idea behind it is because when you say batat, it means that a person has actually gone and spent the evening somewhere. So we don't know where his hands spent the night. Here we're talking about a sleep which is so significant, so overcoming, so overwhelming that you literally knock out. And when you knock out, you're not aware of anything. You don't know what's going on. And that's why normally that's restricted to the night time. And the scholars, they differed upon what's it mean? What does it mean that we don't know where his hand spent the night? Is it to do with touching something? Some people said yes, because the, the hand might touch the genitals. All right? So that's dirty. The other people said that he doesn't know where his hand went, maybe touched najasa of some sort. Okay? Of some impurity. And then a third people, they said that there might be a, uh, from, the, from, the, from the illal, plural of illa, for the sharia reasons behind this hadith, they said that actually his hand might be like hanging off the bed, right? And shaitan might be doing something with it. Something metaphysical, something spiritual, which we don't know the reason for. And that's something we should also take on board. We actually do not know the exact reason why the prohibition in this hadith is. But we can pretty make a good guess. And that is because his hand will be touching something dirty and so on and so forth. So therefore, if you go to sleep at night time and not in the daytime, because normally you don't go to sleep so deeply in the daytime, then you will have to do it. Yes, if you were to go to sleep in the day for so long, like Bobby J, mashallah, when he goes to sleep in the daytime, i never seen anyone go to sleep. What are you shaking your head for? When is the last time you went to sleep at night time proper? Depends they go to sleep in the daytime proper. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm you know, business is, mashallah, is good. He's not even getting an opportunity to sleep at day either. Yeah? <laughs> there are some people, mashallah, when they're sleeping at daytime, 20 phone calls, mum, yani, call on the home line, get your mum upstairs, not working, nothing. Guy's knocked out. Some people, obviously, if they go to a deep, deep sleep in the daytime, the same thing applies. Basically, the illa, according to our opinion and the, the class position, is that if you go to a sleep, if you go to sleep long enough and deep enough where you do not have a clue what's going on. Remember the word sleep is subjective. The scholars differ over what sleep means. Some people said that sleep is leaning on a surface with your eyes closed. 
without you losing your senses. So they would consider you going like this, okay, to be uh, sleeping, which is like, you know, hardcore. Because sleeping causes a number of issues that, you know, especially from a point of view of wudu. And whereas the correct position is, the correct way in Allah knows best, is that actually, and, 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 and the, the, the moderate position, the, the majority if you like, is that it is the, it's going to sleep wherever way you go sleep, whether you lie like this or like that, and you lose your senses. Yani al-ihsas. Right? You are unable to sense. Okay? So if someone's in the room, or someone was to walk in, you wouldn't be able to hear them because they're making tiny bits of noise, but because you're asleep, you can't hear. Because when you're asleep, you can't hear as good as when you're awake. Even though, you know when you have the idea of a light sleeper? Yeah? A light sleeper does not mean that he wakes up at every sound. It means that they are not as they 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 are not as disabled by sleep as others would be. That's what it means when someone's a light sleeper. You can't say that the one who's awake and light sleeping have got the same uh, uh, acuity to, to to listen, right? Is it possible to have that the same, medically speaking? Well, they're different stages of sleep, aren't they? They're different stages of sleep, so you have light and deep sleep. So let's say someone is lightly kind of sleeping, uh, wherever the first level of sleep is. Yes. It'd be easier to arouse them or they'd be more aware of that. No, I mean, meaning, me, 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 no, my question is this. My question is that imagine the lowest level of sleep. When a person enters the lowest level of sleep, is the hearing at that moment the same as hearing when he's awake? Every person is different, but I do think that when you go into any level of sleep, that your ability to sense is reduced. And the reason, and so that's where the scholars then talk about it. They said that as soon as you go to sleep, at any level that your that your uh, senses are taken out, that's the one which is naqidin lil wudu. That's why he's added those words naqidin lil wudu. Yani that which invalidates the uh, wudu, because the humblies. Or Imam al-Hijawi is of my kind of school. Which is that not every sleep breaks the wudu. Because we have the hadith that you all know that the companions were waiting for the uh, Prophet ﷺ to come out for the Salat al-Isha. And the Prophet was delaying it. And they're so tired in the masjid, they were all sitting there. okay, And their heads were, were gone. And they were all you know, and they were, they were all asleep basically. Falling asleep. But none of them got up there when the Prophet came in and he said that if it wasn't for difficulty upon my nation, I would have delayed it to a third or half of the night, every night, Isha, late. But because he said, I don't want to make it difficult upon you, I can see what's going on, we're not going to do that again. He didn't tell any of them to go make wudu again, even though most of them were nodding off. So it shows you that nodding off isn't a problem because when you're nodding off, actually no one has to make a sound, you wake up within seconds. Actually you wake up just by the jerk of the head. Okay? Huh? You're, you're, you're still alert. But technically you're asleep. You're still alert, but technically you're asleep. If, you, if, you, if your eyes go... Let me give you an example. If you're awake, if I'm looking at you now, would I ever go... Yes. <laughs> With my eyes open, you plug. Yeah. <laughs> I've got... <laughs> no, I've done that many times asleep. But that would be crazy, isn't it? For me to look at you... And go <laughs> intentionally and drooling and all that disgusting behavior. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? 
Whereas I only do that when literally I've lost it, I've gone. But where I've gone isn't very far. This is the point. Where I've gone isn't very far, which is why Sheikh uh, says, which is why uh, 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 Sheikh here says, uh, the, and this is at the bottom, and we finish with this, inshallah. Um, at the bottom of page 170, he goes that the sleep has to be a sleep that, is, that, that breaks the wudu. Okay? And the sleep which breaks the wudu according to the Hanbali Madhab is every sleep. Every possible sleep other than very, very light sleep of the standing or the sitting one. So basically what they've done is they've done it ever. They basically said that unless you are, unless you've nodded off standing or sitting, every other sleep basically breaks the wudu. So what you've seen there is that they understand that if you're standing, I'm sure many of you st- fell asleep standing. <laughs> Am I the only weirdo, yeah? <laughs> I stand sleep, I sleep standing all the time. I fall asleep standing, okay? I'll tell you straight. And sitting down, I always fall asleep. It's never a deep sleep, okay? It's like I'm gone, and then Shazad normally wakes up with the flash of the camera because he's yeah, he, a big skank like that, always taking pictures. Um, so uh, uh, that's that's. I, w- I want you to know that the humbly posi- the humbly position is that it supports the idea. Now, now, Sheikh Lutaymin, just to add to this, he says, but actually, and I like this. Well, I like what Sheikh Lutaymin is about to say. He goes, but the correct opinion, in his opinion, as Sahih. That the real issue about whether sleep is invalidating or not is about the senses. Not about the lightness, not about sitting down, not about standing up, not about leaning on something, not about closing the eyes. It's about the senses, al-ihsas. Now listen carefully. He says, فَمَا دَامَ الْإِنسَانُ يَحِسُّ بِنَفْسِهِ لَوْ أَحْدَثْ فَإِنَّ نَوْمَهُ لَا يَنْقُضُ وَضُوءَهُ If a person is able to sense whether he breaks his wudu, he passes wind basically. So it doesn't matter how deep sleep or not sleep he's in. If he has still enough control of his senses that he can tell whether he has broken uh, his wudu, okay, ahdath al-hadath, remember the word hadath from LP1, okay, basically here it means passing wind, then this is not a sleep which breaks the wudu. And I gave you the example of this from Abdullah ibn Abbas last time, a number of the companions, yes? I told you that they were sitting in the, in the masjid, okay? <laughs> my, my favorite athar, uh, and it's authentic. He was sitting in the masjid, cross-legged. And when it's cross-legged, as you know, then the, the shrinkter muscle, the anal shrinkter is more what? <laughs> but look at a doctor trying to black it like, I don't know. When you're, when you're sitting like that, flat, cross-legged, it's basically more difficult to pass wind. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it in any other way. I'm trying to teach you ilm and you guys are yani, making jokes. What, what, what do you want me to do? Now I said, what, what shall I say? Mature. Then they need to mature up. Okay, man up. Yeah? So if you're sitting cross-legged, it's more difficult. So he was sitting cross-legged, number one. Number two, he fell asleep. The level of his sleep was that he definitely fell asleep. His head's gone, everything's gone. He woke up, he turned to his neighbor, <clears throat> he goes, did you smell anything? <laughs> Did you hear anything? His man goes to him, no and no. He goes, no problem. Then he stood up and he prayed there and then. He didn't go make wudu. 
And this, the majority don't accept this. The majority say that, no, 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 we can't go around doing that. But for me, and certainly Sheikh Uthameen, this is his position. If you are, uh, uh, well, he's not going that far, but actually what has happened here is a qiyas upon what his position is. If you are able to ascertain that you broke your wudu or not, then your wudu is fine. Your sleep did not affect it. But if you are unable to be aware of yourself, whether you broke wudu or not, then this wudu is broken. And this is what this is what the scholars mean when they mention the concept of invalidating wudu, sleep which invalidates wudu. And um, and Yani, and basically, it's clear that the most authentic and most correct opinion, the strongest opinion, is that really the 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 the, the sleep which invalidates wudu is the sleep which makes all of your senses go. You've lost all of your uh, senses, and the supporting for the the support for this is for inna ahadakum because one of you does not know He doesn't know. If he doesn't know then he's lost his senses, isn't it? And that was then the wudu, that was then the wudu which has, which, which, uh, sorry, that is the sleep which has established that he has lost his senses. Now, Sheikh Uthameen is sticking to that level. I will take it further. I'm saying the class position is what Sheikh Uthameen has said. What's the class position? So that I can make it clear that the sleep which, uh, uh, not every sleep breaks the wudu, and if you fall into a light sleep where you are sure that you, you are sure, that you have not broken wudu, then your wudu is still intact. Is that clear? My personal position, just for your own benefit, but not as a class position, is that you don't need to be sure. If someone else can ascertain for you, then that's good enough. <laughs> that's the manhaj of the companions, and I'm happy with that. Okay, so uh, we, can, we can call it there. So I just want to also say, and this is important, that this ruling, what have we learned? This point is that if you go to a deep sleep, then whether it's at night time or in the daytime, but in principle it's night time because it's that deep, because one hour doesn't do it. It's got to be a good couple of hours and proper knockdown in bed, yeah? Soft and everything, yeah? And also don't forget, we mentioned that night time because you normally remove your clothes or you're less clothed. Whereas in the daytime, you're on the sofa, you're here, there, you're normally clothed. There's less chance of anything happening, which is why the hadith specifies batat. Yeah. So in principle, okay, nighttime sleep, nocturnal sleep. You go to sleep, you wake up. It is obligatory to wash your hands three times before what, folks? Before what? So that you don't lose the plug. No. 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 Because before you put your hand in a bucket. Therefore, this ruling does not apply to us using a tap. Okay? Because this is to do with soiling the water you're about to use. So, if you turn on the tap, especially if you're using your elbow or you flip it up or even opening it, and then you wash your hands with soap underneath it, or you don't wash your hands or you start straight away, whatever, regardless, okay? The ruling is not applied to the water itself. Meaning a person could just put his hands underneath and if that cleans something there, it cleans it or not. And this is a position of actually a number of the scholars and it's been narrated from Sheikh Mubarak Fouri and Mubarak Fouri as well. Also the position of Sheikh Saleh Fawzan as well and Sheikh Al-Uthaymeen. Actually he mentions it here 
he goes, And this is only if he actually intends to put them into water. You will remember, I will remind you, if you go back to page whatever it is in LP notes, you will remember that the reason it was mentioned there is that if dirty hands are put into a pot of water, does the pot of water lose its ability to purify it? Who remembers that? We said, no, it doesn't. And it remains upon its original state. Okay? And so therefore, the argument of the other scholars was that when you put your hand into this water, the whole water is messed up. Okay? That's why you can't do it. Actually, the issue is linked. Yes, we accept that argument, even though we accept it as an argument, but it's not the correct position. The water still remains unless... Why, when does the water lose, lose, become impure? If it loses, it changes its color, its taste. If it becomes dirty, not just by virtue of something dirty falling in, it doesn't always necessitate it. Yeah? If we've got to see it change. So, Sheikh Uthameen, sticking firmly to that principle, he says that it's not really about that. If you're using a tap, it's no problem. All right? So, in summary, I want to say to you that in the Sunnah, or Sunnah is something which is important. Don't take it lightly. From the Sunnah is that one does uh, a siwak before you start wudu. From the sunnah is to wash your hands three times. It is obligatory if you're about to put your hands in a bucket, but for the majority of us, you're going to be using a tap, so it still just remains sunnah. It's sunnah to do. Okay, folks? That's a wrap on that one. Went over a little bit, but I think that was okay. Uh, Next week, inshallah, interesting stuff. Any questions? Any any questions this side? Yes, Nasr. I'd like to ask, uh, I would take from this hadith from that, that uh, when one of you... Hands So Nasser is asking, he goes, well, what really is then the reason behind this hadith uh, 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 for us obligating washing the hands if we were to put them in a bucket? What actually is the reason? Uh, the, the answer to that, the answer to that question is something which we spent a while on last time and a little bit this time. Basically, the scholars have no agreement on what the reason is. Um, as I said to you before, the three reasons that some said that he touches the genitals, some said that he touches the jasa, actual dirt itself, and others said that it has a spiritual connotation of shaitan being involved. Others said we don't know the illa, we just follow it. Um, so all of these are, po- are possible reasons. The hadith that you mentioned about uh, it just being another limb is not a hadith concerning najasa. It's a hadith con- concerning shahwa. So it's not to be applied like you applied it. Meaning that touching the genitals if they are dirty still makes your hands dirty. The, the, the statement of the Prophet ﷺ was not about the genitals being dirty. He was talking about it creating sexual desire. And him saying that just touching the genitals does not incite sexual desire by itself, intrinsically. Meaning the wudu is only broken, we can come to that obviously later, wudu is only broken if the desire is otherwise touching it, which is another part of your body. So that's the meaning of that. And as for najasa, if we were to apply the concept of najasa, then that's obvious. If you've got najasa on your hands, and when you have children, you'll know that that's something very, very common. Children are very, very bad at cleaning themselves. 
very bad at cleaning themselves. And so therefore, when they often scratch themselves and they do anally scratch, okay? And that's why they have worms and all this kind of nonsense, yep? Then the hands, they get their thingy. Now, adults, if they've got poor hygiene, will do the same. The reason I mention that is because if you remember, go back to LP lesson, whatever it is, the notes, you will see we had an important discussion because the Prophet Wasallam, and this is where Sheikh Uthameen comes to power, strength here, he says there's nothing to do with the dirt and so on. He said because this was this hadith is it goes in the one of you Muslims, right? Meaning that the mutamayyiz, meaning that the young lad who's most likely to have dirt on his hands has not been told not to do it, and the non-Muslim who's much more likely to have dirt everywhere, he's also not been told to do it, but the Muslims have been. Indicating some kind of spiritual reason which we can't put our finger on. Main thing to learn is that there's no certainty on their illa. And without no certainty, we won't discuss it too much. So the question is, is that if we're going to say that we don't know what their illa is for definite, then how can we then say that you don't need to wash it if it is in a if we're using a tap? The answer to that is number one, as I said. The majority of the scholars do consider it to be a filth, non-filth issue. So that answers that question. The second answer is that the hadith itself says, يَغْمِسَ يَدَهُ فِي Meaning that he dips his hand into a container. Now, there is a world of difference between you dipping your hand into a closed container of water and water then being carried away when it's flowing. So actually even the meaning of the hadith is different. And Allah subhanahu wa knows best. Alright guys, we'll call it with that. Uh, uh, London people who are listening, see you guys on Sunday. Manchester uh, people, uh, you, uh, your event is uh, Saturday? Is it yours? Uh, the uh, Yasmin, yeah? So what did I do? It's okay. It's okay? Uh, the AIRA uh, 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 workshop is this Saturday at Salford University. Check that out. I, I'm, I'm hoping to... Uh, make an appearance there inshallah as well uh, and then at Salford University and in the evening there is uh, uh, Yasmin Mujahid who's also doing uh, something for the sisters uh, as well and we're supporting that and um, what else is there? Anything else? Right, okay, that's it. Alright, um, exactly. Yep. Yeah. One comment. Yes. Um, Brother Uthman says that tomorrow makes exactly one year since your LP class. So 5th of December, yeah? We should have some kind of Eid for that, isn't it? Huh? We've got to do something, yeah? Well, I, listen, you know that you are representative of that entire student body, yeah? Right? So you know that obviously one year on next week is going to require some kind of effort, right? It wasn't me who wrote that comment. What do you know what date looks for? What are you sisters here for? What's the point of coming every single week? No, 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 samos. That's the problem with young sisters. No sharam at all. If there were aunties, they'd be bringing samosa, kebab, <laughs> cake, and rasmalai and things like that. And uh, Jelani, yeah, Jelani sitting there enjoying himself. The only one who's free of every kind of yani, uh, responsibility is Dr. Saab. He's bought more chocolate for this, for this yani, class. Jazallah khair. Has kept me going. Oh, yeah, sah, sah. Allah, the apple wars. We need to start some kind of war again. Uh, we need to cause some kind of fitness to get the thingy. So I think we should have a celebration. Is it haram? Is it haram to have a celebration after one year? It's a bit, yeah? 
Okay, bid'ah hasna inshallah. Bring some chocolate next week, yeah? As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Allahumma alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Yeah, go ahead, Yusuf. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, I'm going to discuss this. Some of you have been asked about Sunday. Yeah, go ahead. Akram Nedwi's class this Sunday in Manchester, yeah? That's a local crowd thing, that's fine. Where is it? Where? Manchester Conference Centre, yeah, for guys who are free on Sunday. In terms of the, so, where, where, let me go. Well, you know, dress. So, of course. Give it to that and let her be aware.